are looking this morning at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15, through the end of the chapter. As always, I know that you're going to find it helpful to have your own copy of Scripture open and to be reading along with me this morning. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15, and we're going to read down to verse 23. We have... Um, we have looked at three uh, sermons on that lengthy section in the opening chapter of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, verses 3 through 14. I've noted several times that that section in Greek is 202 words. It's a run-on sentence. Uh, This section is a little bit shorter. In Greek, it is 170 words, but it, it feels almost as if it's just as pregnant with theological truth and the riches of God's grace as what we've just looked at. But I'm going to do my best to cover these verses in one sermon so that we can move on in this great letter that really captures the doctrine of God's sovereign, eternal grace in Christ toward us who he has caused to believe So we're looking this morning at Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15, and having uh, proclaimed that great doxological blessing on God the Father for all the riches of his grace that he has bestowed on us freely in Christ, the apostle now turns to tell the Ephesians that he is praying for them. This is arguably the greatest prayer that we'll, we'll find by the Apostle Paul in any of his letters, you'll find one similar to it over in chapter 3, but not quite as rich as this prayer. And so here in verse 15, the Apostle now says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places." Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all In all, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, I wonder if I asked you this morning, what what are you going to do after you have worshipped? I wonder what you would say. I would guess the majority of you would tell me that you're going to go have lunch, and then you're going to tell me how you're going to spend the rest of your day. And all of those things are fine. They are good. They are necessary things, no doubt. But if you were to ask the Apostle Paul what he was going to do after he had worshipped, based on what we have in this chapter, he would tell you that he was going to turn to the Lord in prayer for the people that God had been gracious to. 
It's very interesting in uh, verses 3 through 14, the apostle has worshipped. He has praised God for for every spiritual blessing that he has bestowed on believers in the heavenly places in Christ. He has, he has worshipped God and praised him for, for showing all of those spiritual blessings freely to the people that he chose in Christ before the foundation of the world. He has worshipped God while enumerating those blessings and trying to help believers understand what God has done for them in Christ. Those seven blessings that he has given them from election to the sealing of the Spirit for the eternal inheritance. And you'll remember, if you have been here the last several Sundays, that we said one of the great problems in the Christian life, and I feel this in my own, is that we all are living way below the level of privileges that are already ours in Christ— And so what does the apostle do? He worships God, and then he turns and tells the Ephesians, I am praying for you that you will understand more of what I have just worshipped God for in your life, and that you will know more of it in your own experience, and that you will grow and increase in living in light of what God has already done for you. Um. I'm not sure anyone has put this better. He puts most things better, but Sinclair Ferguson says this. He says, What is the chief fruit of having the benediction of God pronounced on you and having your heart in response antiphonally pronounced benediction on God's name? What is that chief fruit? Ferguson says, The chief fruit of worship is intercession. The chief fruit of worship is intercession. The chief fruit of doxology is prayer. Paul says here, for this reason, because I have all the more cause to praise God because of these things I have now heard are true of you. The first thing he does is to engage in intercession for them. If the chief fruit of worship is intercession, Ferguson says, the chief evidence of my love for services of worship will be the way in which they draw me, indeed drive me, to intercede that those things for which I have been worshiping God may be shed abroad among God's people in every place, particularly among Christian believers with whom I have a special bond of fellowship. What he is saying in summary form is, if I really understand why I am worshiping God, if I really understand why I am praising God, if those things have really gripped my heart, then I am going to understand I am doing that in light of God giving all those blessings to all other believers, and I will especially turn in intercession for those God has knit together in close relationship with me. Um. We all find prayer to be very difficult. Um, I would challenge all of us to go home and see how long we can just thank God for things in prayer. Paul is teaching us this morning, this is the right response. Now having worshipped God, now having praised him for what he's done, the right response is that we would turn to him. Notice that Paul says there in verse 15, for this reason, for this reason, I do not cease to give thanks to you, remembering you in my prayers. Now, I want us to see three things this morning. First, as we look at this section, as we look at this prayer, I want us to consider it as a prayer of thanksgiving. And then I want us to consider it as a prayer of dependence. 
And then finally, a prayer for spiritual illumination, a prayer of thanksgiving, a prayer of dependence, and a prayer of spiritual illumination. We'll notice that the first thing that Paul says is, for this reason, because I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you. What ought to be the response of my heart when I see others who are trusting Christ and loving his people is thanksgiving to God. Now, if I can put it this way this morning, our response ought to be thanksgiving to God for those graces in their lives because those graces are so incredibly rare in the world. The only place that you will ever see people trusting in Christ and loving his people is in the church where God has really and truly blessed his people with his blessings of grace in Christ. It is the only place where God has manifested his blessing in the lives of those that he has chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. And that means when I look out on God's people and we look on each other, our response ought to be thankfulness to God because God alone could do that in the lives of other people. Because faith in Christ and love for the saints is not something that I have in myself naturally. It's not something that I possess and I can just summon up and that I can stir up within me. It is something that is given to me as a supernatural grace of God. And it's something that's given to you as a supernatural grace of God. So that when we meet other believers who have the same spirit of faith toward Christ and love for the saints— Our hearts ought to be immediately wed to them, and the right response is to want to give thanks to God for them. Now, to my shame, and since we all have the same nature, I'm going to just guess to your shame, we often complain about other believers way quicker than we pray for them with thanksgiving. Notice that Paul is teaching us that the way for us to really, um, way for us to really respond appropriately to other believers is to be in the habit of giving thanks to God for them. You know that C.S. Lewis has that that interesting statement, and I'm paraphrasing that if, if in glory you were to see the weakest, most annoying saint that you couldn't stand being around in this life, and and he or she was in a glorified state, you would be tempted to fall down and worship him or her. Because that's what he or she really and truly is because of God's grace. Um, If our hearts are gripped by all the blessings that God has given us in Christ toward all the saints— then the right response is for us to be thanking God for them. Now, you know, this is really, in many respects, just a a recitation of what the Lord Jesus prays in John 17, that he prays that all his people would be one, just as he is one with his Father, that that they would be one, that the world would know that, that the Father sent the Son because they see the love that believers have for one another. Listen to this. Thomas Watson, the Puritan, said this, As in music, though there are many strings on a violin, yet all make one sweet harmony. So though there are several Christians, yet there should be one sweet harmony of affection 
among them. The Apostle Paul is teaching that this is coming out of a heart of affection. He hasn't even met half of these people. He hasn't been in this congregation for about six years after he spent those three years with the original core group of that church plant. And he even says, notice verse 15, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord and your love for all the saints. These are people, he hasn't even met all of them. And yet the affection the harmony and the thankfulness that he has for them reverberates off of him in such a way that he wants them to know this is the right response when we think about other believers. What a difference this would make if we were in the habit of thanking God for the graces that he has given every believer. I want to raise a challenge this morning. My wife, who is much godlier than me um, in every way, has encouraged me recently that we go through the member directory and that we take several members at a time and we pray for them. And then we go back and keep doing that. And I want to challenge us as a congregation to be doing that, that we would take what Paul says here, that we would be praying on a daily basis for the different members of this congregation and then from other congregations and out from there that that would be our habit because if we're doing that when we see each other, we're going to be filled with thanksgiving and it's going to be very hard to complain about what I think he or she should be doing that they're not doing that I think they should be doing. Notice that that's completely absent from everything that Paul ever writes to the churches. Completely absent. And in the place, and this is the secret, He has learned to be praying for them with thanksgiving. Well, even more than that, this is a prayer of dependence. As I've already noted, everything that believers have is because God has given it to them. There is nothing in us that we can claim credit for anything that we have. It's all from Christ. It's all because of God's electing grace. It's all because he has blessed us with every blessing in the heavenly places. And Paul understands that. And so Paul is praying with this absolute dependence on God to do in his people what only he can do in them. Um, I know this is true in the Western world. We have enough money and, and we have enough leadership gifts and strategies that we can do ministry for a very long time without depending on God. That's a very frightful thing, that we can just go through the motions in, in human strength. And, and Paul would not have us do this. Notice this. He says in verse 17, he is praying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Now, one of the questions you may have as you look at the rest of this prayer, and it's a very rich prayer. Paul actually teaches us how to pray and what to pray for. I may have told you this. I have a friend who's a sort of well-known theologian in the Reformed Church, and he says, you know, too often in the church, our, our public prayers are more of an organ concert. He says, I pray for so-and-so's eyes and so-and-so's heart and some other body part. It's an organ concert. And here Paul's teaching us the, the weightier things. We should pray for those things, but these are the weightier things. These are the really important things. If, if Paul is going to turn now and, and he's going to show us what it is to depend on God in prayer for other believers, what is it? that we ought to value the most. And the first thing he says is that 
He may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. Now, you, you might ask, didn't Paul just say he, that God has already given us his spirit? Wasn't that the last of the blessings in, in verse 13 and 14? Yes, he said God has given us the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance. Why now is Paul praying that God the Father would give the same people he just said he has sealed with the Spirit, the Spirit. Because he knows that uh, there is always more that we lack and that we need. John Calvin has a very interesting statement on this verse where he says something along the lines of the godliest person you will ever meet in this life has so much more that he or she needs by way of God's spiritual graces and blessings. Isn't that interesting? He said he's already done this for you. Now I'm praying that he will give you more. And the very first thing as he depends on him is that he will give him the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Um, The apostle is depending on God to enable other believers to know him. That is, by the way, the single greatest thing that we need in this life, to know, to know the living God, to know him, to really intimately know him. John Calvin, at the opening of his Institutes of the Christian Religion, has that great statement where he, he says that all um, human knowledge and self-knowledge is dependent first on a knowledge of God, who he is, what he's like, how he has revealed himself. And, and it's not surprising that J.I. Packer wrote that great book, Knowing God. You know where he got that idea? From Calvin's Institutes. That, that the most important thing for any person is that he or she knows God. And, and Paul is depending on God for others to have the knowledge of God. He is praying for them to grow in wisdom and knowledge in the revelation of him. Now, that's not going to come mystically. Let me just say that. that that's going to come through us keeping ourselves in God's word. That's where he reveals himself. It's, it's going to come from us uh, going to the throne of grace and praying Um, to him. It's going to come from us doing what you're doing right now, being under the ministry of his word, being in worship with his people. It's, It's going to come with us exhorting one another and encouraging one another. It's going to come, it's going to come in all the ways that God has appointed means. Today, we're going to come to the table. The purpose of the Lord's Supper is that you and I would grow in our knowledge of God, that we would grow in knowing him. It's interesting, I've already noted that this is a prayer of dependence, and um, I just want to say this this morning and really emphasize this. Um, Jonathan Edwards has this sermon he preached in July of 1739 called God Glorified in Man's Dependence. God Glorified in Man's Dependence. And and Edward says this, he says, there is an absolute and universal dependence of the redeemed on God. The nature of our redemption is such that the redeemed are in everything directly, immediately, and entirely dependent on God. So that when I 
am praying for you, and if you are praying for me, we are collectively praying in dependence on God to do what he alone can do for us. I know that we've been looking at the blessing of election and predestination some, and many people who hate that doctrine, um, and yet, as J.I. Packer has duly noted, there, there are only Calvinists when they are on their knees in prayer. If you are depending on God, if you are saying everything about me and everything about everyone I know is absolutely dependent on God, you are praying in light of his sovereign grace and mercy. And that is glorifying to God. The Lord loves to answer those prayers. When we pray together, Lord, would you give so-and-so a greater measure of wisdom and knowledge and the revelation of you? The Lord loves to answer that prayer. He is glorified when we pray like that. Well, it is not only a prayer of thanksgiving, and it is not only a prayer of dependence, it is a prayer for spiritual illumination. I want us to look at this together. This is the bulk of this prayer. Notice verse 18, he now says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. You know, some of you have probably been through surgeries. I've only had a few. Thankfully, they were laparoscopic, and I was really sedated. Um, Nothing terrifies me more than thinking of someone operating on my eye. It's just a terrifying thought. Maybe that's just me. I don't want to think of anyone getting close to my eye with anything sharp. Um, And yet, we realize that the time may come when we need eye surgery so that we can see clearly. And here, Paul is recognizing that what the Ephesians need at the sovereign working of God is to have the eyes of their hearts enlightened so that they can see the spiritual realities that they can't see on their own, that they can see the spiritual realities they can't see to the degree that they need to see them, that there is always more of God needing to open the eyes of our hearts. Um, The psalmist understood this. Uh, David prayed, open the eyes of my heart that I may see wondrous things from your word. What do I need today as I preach to you? And what do you need as you sit there today? You need, and I need, the eyes of my heart enlightened further so that I can see what is already mine in Christ, so that I can grow in understanding the greatness of what God has already done for me through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Notice that Paul is going to give us three things. I want us to look at this as we consider this prayer of illumination. Three things. Notice first, he prays that they may know the hope to which he has called them. That's the first, the hope of their calling. He then prays secondly, that they may know the riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints. And then he prays for the third thing, that they would know the greatness of his power at work in them the hope of their calling, the riches of the inheritance of the saints, and the exceeding greatness of the power that's at work in them. Now, I want us to just briefly consider these three things this morning. Um, The hope of their calling. Notice that Paul is essentially picking up on 
Uh, What he began back at the beginning of chapter 1, he wants you to understand what God has called you to. One one of the great shortcomings of our Christian lives is that we, we don't meditate enough on the hope that is God has set before us. Now, part of that, I think, listen carefully, part of that is because when we talk about hope, when we speak about hope, when we think about hope, we do so in a sort of uncertain sense. I really hope that so-and-so shows up today. I really hope that I'll get to do this. I really hope that things might work out so that this will happen. That's how we tend to think about hope. But in the Bible, when God talks about hope, and here when he talks about the hope of your calling, he is talking about something that is absolutely certain and sure. God has called you into the fellowship of his son to give you everlasting hope, a sure and real hope that you are going to be with him in the world to come. Notice, notice at the end of verse 21, he says, after talking about the exaltation of Christ, that not only in this age, but also in the one to come. He wants you to be sure that there is a world to come and that you have been sealed for that everlasting life. Um, if we lack, if we lack the hope of our calling, we will not be fruitful in Christian service because the way God has created us is such that if we lack that hope, we will either move into a mode where we're just trying to work to gain God's favor, or we live in spiritual paralysis when we consider all of our failings. You see, when this peace is not there, we, we will either fall into legalism or despondency and desperation, and in neither case will we be fruitful. I think that's why Paul's praying for this. He wants you to understand that you having the hope of the calling to which God has called you to trust in his son is so that you will make your way through this life certain of what God has done for you and where you're heading. That's the first thing. The second thing that he prays that they would have spiritual illumination to see is the riches of the glory of the inheritance of the saints. Now, you may say, well, wait a minute. We, we heard about the inheritance last time. Um, we heard that that inheritance was the new heavens and the new earth. We heard that that inheritance was us getting to be with Christ for all eternity. And that is what Paul had in mind in verse 13 and 14. Um, and now you've just told us that the hope of your calling is pretty much the same thing. So is not Paul just saying the same thing when he says that he wants you to see Uh, the riches of the glory of the inheritance in the saints. I think here Paul's praying something different. I think Paul here is praying that you would understand that you are God's inheritance. Um, Malachi 3, listen to this. Malachi 3, 16 and 17. Those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. A book of remembrance was written before him. And listen to this. He said, they shall be mine in the day when I make them my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. The Apostle Paul 
prayed that these believers, and by way of connection, us, would know that we are God's inheritance. You know, we often rightly talk about our depravity, our unworthiness, the wrath of God, the justice of God. We rightly talk about those things, but we also rightly need to say that because of God's grace and because of what he's done in Jesus, he has made you his everlasting inheritance. And that should be shocking because I know that in me there is nothing that ought to commend me to God to be a inheritance. And yet God says about every believer that you are the apple of his eye. By the way, that doesn't mean a literal apple. It means the soft spot that you don't want somebody to poke. Remember, I hate the thing about eyes and anybody getting close to my eyes. God says that you, if you're a believer in Jesus, you are the apple of his eye, that whoever touches you touches that, that you are precious to him. You know, it ought to astonish us more, and, and Paul wants our, 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 uh, the eyes of our hearts to be illuminated to understand that, that more importantly than us having an everlasting inheritance is that God would make us his inheritance. More important than us not being ashamed of God is that he's not ashamed of you. And Paul actually says that in Galatians. He says, um, he says, having come to know God, or rather to be known by God. And elsewhere, he says that he is not ashamed. The writer of Hebrews says he is not ashamed to be called our God. He has prepared a city for us. That city is also for him. Now, now think about when that sinks down, how that ought to motivate us to stay close to the Lord and to serve him with right motives and with joy and with thankfulness. Now, I want us to consider this last thing. And, and it's as if here, the apostle can't even explain what he's really praying for. Notice verse 19, the third thing he prays that they would have the eyes of their hearts open to see is the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Now, Paul is going to string together several Greek words. If you transliterated them, they would come out something like the hyperbolic mega dynamic according to his energy that he worked when he raised Jesus at work in you. There's no other construct like this in any Greek language. Paul is trying to explain that God has reserved a power to be at work in us that is far beyond any power that you have ever experienced and that it can only be likened and it is rooted in the power that he worked in Jesus when he raised him from the dead. So I'm going to ask you this morning, how much power does it take to raise somebody from the dead? And I'm going to tell you, I don't know, a whole lot of power. And then I'm going to say, do you really believe that God has reserved that same resurrection power to be at work in you now? Because if we believe that, when we were tempted, we would go to him and say, Lord, work that power in me that I would not succumb to this temptation when we recognize our spiritual deficiencies, we would go and say, Lord, will you supply for me according to your great power 
that resurrection power, what I lack in this area of my life. And Paul is praying that all believers would know that spiritual power at work in them. I'm not going to get through any more of this this morning. I just want to I want to emphasize that the Apostle Paul would have us leave this place of worship this morning, having worshiped God and praised him, committed to praying for one another with thanksgiving, in absolute dependence on God, and for the spiritual illumination that he alone can give in all of these things. Um, you can ask me if I'm praying for you in this way. I want you to do that. You can ask each other. You can encourage each other. Um, You know, there's almost no greater mark of love than when someone says to us, you know, I'm praying for you, and you know they really are. That is the greatest mark of love, one believer for another. It's what worship ought to lead to. So that this is not just routine, rote, ritualistic stuff. And we go out of here and nothing happens, nothing changes. And it's all been done by Christ. He's, done, he's purchased all this. He's secured all this. It's all in him. It's all from him. And so as we come to the table this morning, I want to encourage you to be meditating on these things as we come to grow together in the wisdom and the knowledge of the revelation of our God. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we feel our weakness. We know our inadequacies. We acknowledge those times of prayerlessness. We confess those. We acknowledge that we have not responded after worshiping you in praying with thanksgiving for your people. And so we ask this morning that you would make us a congregation that is committed to praying with thanksgiving and dependence on you and for spiritual illumination one for another. Our God, would you give us that same heart conviction and resolution as the apostle had? And would you stir us up as we come to the table that we might grow in our desire to see these things implemented in our lives? So Lord, would you help us? Would you make us to know the exceeding greatness of your power at work in us, which you worked in Christ when you raised him from the dead. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.